Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is William B. Irvine, the author of A Guide to the Good Life, The Stoic Challenge, and On Desire, to name a few. William is a philosophy professor who not only teaches, thinks, and writes about philosophy, but has adopted a philosophy for living, namely the ancient philosophy known as Stoicism. In the conversation, William and I discuss philosophy, desire, happiness, tranquility, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious William B. Irvine. Bill Irvine, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure on this end. I've been looking forward to this for a while. And I wanted to begin with just a question around maybe what led you initially to get a PhD in philosophy. I read um, Walden by Henry David Thoreau in uh, high school, uh, senior year in high school. And that same year, I watched uh, a documentary on Bertrand Russell, the philosopher on PBS, it must have been, because I can't imagine <laughs> what else would do that. And I put the two of those together and decided I wanted to be a philosopher because I wanted to follow in the footsteps of Henry David Thoreau, showed up on a, a campus of University of Michigan, took a philosophy class, um, and was um, disappointed to find out that they didn't think that the proper job of a philosopher was to think about life and how to best live it. Uh, they were more fo focused on technical issues. Um, so I decided um, I tried a few different majors. Uh, I tried physics, uh, uh, which I, I very much enjoyed, but uh, physics gets really hard pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, I had, uh, in conjunction with physics, a math major. Uh, I got back into uh, philosophy, ended up with a double major in math and philosophy because I figured that uh, it, I, they told me it's very hard to get jobs in uh, philosophy. And I figured uh, uh, I could hide that by having a math major as well, a future employer, a non-academic <laughs> employer. If I said, uh, they said, well, what's your major? I said, math. They'd think, oh, this is somebody who can, who can do something. Whereas, you know, if you tell them you're a philosopher, ah, you know, that's one strike <laughs> against you. And it's going to be a hard strike to overcome. And after you got your PhD, I, I see you kind of bounced around uh, to a few different universities and then finally landed at, at Wright State, where you've been for quite some time. Uh, how did that come to be? Um, that's the standard kind of procedure for somebody uh, graduating with a philosophy PhD. I mean, if I had been born 10 years earlier, I could just pop out with a PhD and go to a university somewhere. But things were starting to slow down. So we uh, started entering uh, a depression 
that's lasted basically since uh, the mid seventies of where PhDs now find it very difficult to, to get jobs. Mm. Um, what you want is a tenure track position, uh, and because it pays best, it gives you the security. You have intellectual freedom. It's got a bunch of things going for it, um, but. <clears throat> At the same time, uh, they're hard to get. So what you do is you uh, are a visiting professor for a while at mm. various places, and you're constantly on the job market. And so I was a visiting professor at um, Pacific Lutheran University for one year, replacing somebody who was on leave. And then I moved to University of Cincinnati for one year, again, replacing someone who was on leave. Then moved to Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, again, replacing someone who was on leave. But then uh, the person who was on leave uh, stayed gone, and so a position opened up. Uh, and so that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, uh, taught there for 38 and a half years, and I say that in past tense because uh, just a few weeks ago I retired. I officially retired. They had... Uh, a buyout, and it looked like um, hard times were coming to our university. Uh, so I thought, uh, it's as good a time as any. You know, I'm nearly 70, so it's as good a time as any to to uh, head off to whatever the next stage of my life is going to be. Well, congratulations on that. That's uh, that's great. Are you able to share anything of about what might be coming in the, in the future with some of this extra time that you might have? Um, see, I refer to myself as semi-retired, so I'm no longer appearing in class in the classroom at Wright mm. State. And the last semester, I wasn't even doing that physically, you know, the, I was doing it online. Uh, but I'm still a teacher because, um, uh, so this is an example of one of my teaching activities, only it's to a broader uh, group of people than in the classroom. And I don't have to give a, anybody grades. That's kind of <laughs> nice. And the, the people who are here are people who, the people who are listening are people who want to be listening, you know, of their own free will. It's, it isn't that somebody has dragged them aside and said, unless you take this class, you can't graduate. Um, and of course, the other uh, teaching aspect, other outreach teaching is the writing I'm doing currently in the late stages of writing a book on um, uh, thinking critically but with an open mind. And um, and then after that, plans for uh, a book on, uh, on religion, which comes as a surprise to me, but I just follow my, my interests uh, where they lead me. And you know what? This is, for me, just the best life possible, because... Uh, for the last few decades, I've gotten paid to think about things I want to think about and then to share with the world um, the conclusions I've drawn. And uh, I was born to do that, you know, but, but I could easily have missed that life and, uh, I don't know, been a CEO of some tobacco corporation or something by <laughs> now. Who knows? You know, the twists and turns that life takes. Well, great. I, I love it. And, uh, I'm excited about the the new book that you're working on. That's actually, I finished up listening to a conversation that you had on the Knowledge Project, and towards the very end of it, you, you touched on this idea of of a balance between openness and skepticism, which I wasn't aware that that was the the topic of the of the book that you're working on. But maybe we could start there to to chat a little bit about what you what you mean by that. <clears throat> 
Yeah. Uh, so for me, um, the whole pandemic had a, a silver lining, and that was I became a very I, I, I do typically stoicism. And uh, uh, it's a great time to be a stoic, and it's a great time to be willing to be a, va- uh, a guest on podcasts because people were interested in, you know, well, what would a stoic do under uh, these circumstances? Uh, so I, I did a ton of podcasts in connection with that. Uh, so I did a podcast with uh, Shane Parrish, and, you know, kind of an interesting thing, because he, he is very much interested in skepticism, critical thinking, and so on. But but yet, we approached it primarily as, uh, uh, you know, talking about stoicism. And then it's like the, the camel sticking its nose under the tent, and then and the critical thinking uh, stuff popped in at the end. But here, to my mind, there's a, a sort of a, an interesting tension if, if you want to have a, a mind that's full of true and useful beliefs, full to the extent possible, if you want to optimize your mind, then you need to do two things. You need to go seeking for new, true, and useful things to believe. That is, you've got to be open-minded. And uh, at the same time, you have to be very skeptical. You have to play the role of doorman, deciding which beliefs get in and which don't. And that same doorman is also going to be the, the housekeeper in the sense that uh, there, there have already been lots of uh, false beliefs that have gotten into your mind, uh, snuck in, you know, in the undercover of darkness. And they lurk there because over the course of your life, you acquire a bunch of beliefs, you know, from your parents, from your friends, from the Internet. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so you're... you're uh, your mind is is like this swamp. It's got some true stuff. It's got some some really bad stuff uh, lurking side by side. So uh, two jobs if you want to be um, uh, optimize your mind. One is welcome new beliefs, and the other is uh, avoid and get rid of false beliefs. And there's a tension between those. But you can see that if you said, well, the goal is simply to be open-minded, well, your brain's going to be flooded with beliefs, a strange mix of true and false beliefs, and that's no good. But if you were utterly skeptical and critical, then you would have uh, probably only true beliefs, but there'd be a whole bunch of useful true beliefs that would be outside of you. You you wouldn't you wouldn't believe them, um, and uh, you you wouldn't you would deny them admittance. Right? You're you're just too critical. So that's what struck me as interesting the the kind of the tension between those two things, and then the goal is to do both at the same time. And it might sound impossible, but it isn't. So, for instance, uh, open mindedness. What do you do? Well, you know, the internet is a source of a number of different uh, ideas about a number of different things. It's a wonderful resource, but you have to be very careful. You have to be critical. Uh, uh, you know, and, and we, we live in a time where we have this um, incredible source of information, namely the Internet, and it's massively polluted. So you got to go to it thinking, okay, I'm going to be drinking water from a polluted pond. So I got to be really careful <laughs> what I do. Uh, but that's the goal. You know, you got these two contrary things. 
and uh, and if you if you care about your mind, the well being of your mind, you got to do them both at the same time. How do you see this connecting with Stoicism? Um, the Stoics actually were uh, logicians themselves. So uh, back in the day, this would have been uh, you know ancient Greece and then uh, ancient Rome. Um, uh, most of the philosophical schools didn't do one thing. They did multiple things. And the schools themselves were, were basically freestanding private universities of a sort. Uh, they uh, had, had to draw students, and they did that by providing um, uh, services that students or the parents of students, because these were uh, typically, uh, you had to pay to uh, attend these um, much more inf- uh, informal than modern universities are. But they had to offer something that you would find uh, useful. And the people who went there uh, typically were people who were headed for a career in the future in, um, in government, a legal kind of career. So, um, you know, they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to sharpen up your critical thinking skills. And, uh, and at the same time, we're gonna uh, we're gonna tell you how to have a a good life. We're gonna do both of those. So the Stoics, um, that whole notion of sharpening your critical skills, the Stoics uh, were the early uh, investigators and developers of what has become known as propositional logic, and that's the logic involving if-then sentences and sentences or nor, you know, those sorts of sentences. And if you've had any computer programming, that'll ring a bell, because that's the kind of logic that's used in modern computers. That's, um, uh, that's the kind of logic, if, if that, that logic hadn't been developed, your cell phone would stop working, uh, or wouldn't have been developed. Now, I'm not saying that um, the Stoics uh, invented computers or anything like that, or even invented programming, but they invented... The, or they developed the logical uh, concepts on which programming is, uh, is based. Um, so here's the curious thing. So I told you about going away to uh, college and taking philosophy classes, expecting, hoping that I would be exposed to uh, philosophies on, uh, about how to, how to live well. Uh, and I did encounter the Stoics, but not in conjunction with their advice on how to live well, but rather uh, in a logic class mm-hmm. in which I encountered propositional logic. And then they mentioned, oh, by the way, the Stoics were the ones who uh, who came up with this stuff. So at first, it seems odd, you know, okay, so here's somebody who's just coming out of Stoicism, and, and you know, I've written... Um, a few books now that talk about their their advice on how to live well, and now I'm headed off uh, into a, a critical thinking book, uh, and that sounds like a, a, a really massive jump in interest. But in fact, uh, the Stoics themselves uh, were intensely interested in logic. Uh, they were also very well aware of the uh, intrinsic irrationality of human beings. So the idea that um, you don't want to uh, like it or not. Uh, we humans, we're rational, but we also have an irrational component buried within us, and it's not going to leave. And uh, so then the trick is how to get along with it. And their idea 
was what we have to do is outthink these deeper components, you know, and to put it into the most uh, anatomical terms, you can think about your head, which does the reasoning, and your heart and gut. So your heart uh, is where your emotions lie, your gut is where fear lies, and um, fight-or-flight responses. And you're stuck throughout your life, you have to live with those three uh, components. And so the trick, the insight of the Stoics was, uh, you know what, a lot of people, uh, their, their head is hijacked by their, their heart and their gut. So their head, instead of reasoning, which is what it's capable of doing, spends its days rationalizing. And that is coming up with reasons why the heart and gut should have whatever it is they want. In which case, you know, why, you know, it comes up with clever strategies. You can be brilliant, mm-hmm. but you're, you're, you're not doing it to, to fill your head with true and useful beliefs. It's just, you know, your heart wants something. And so you say, oh, I got a clever way to get that. So you're not in charge anymore. But the stoic insight was that um, you, you got to acknowledge that. And once you do acknowledge it, you've got to come up with a strategy for dealing with that. And ideally, what you do is come up with a strategy where your head can not only resist the seduction, being seduced or hijacked by your heart and gut, but where your brain can actually harness those powers um, and use them for the good of, of yourself so you can have a a good life. So there's just all sorts of really interesting connections between uh, what I was doing when I'm talking about stoic strategies uh, to avoid negative emotions and what I will be doing when I talk about stoic strategies for uh, how to avoid committing uh, a variety of fallacies which arise because of our uh, our hybrid nature, you know, of, yeah, we yeah. got a head, but we also have a heart and gut. How do you see that that tension as you as you discuss between openness and skepticism? It seems that tension exists in in many of the stoic exercises. Like I think of negative visualization or memento mori, things like that. Like there's an and component with that as you talk about kind of getting high hijacked. How do you see? that tension coming to play if you do in some of the other stoic exercises? Um, Stoic exercises, those are all exercises in which you're coming up with clever ways to uh, avoid uh, the the harm that can be done by uh, the heart and uh, gut. So to pick one uh, uh, that you mentioned, a negative visualization. Uh, it's, It's a Easy technique to use, what you do is uh, periodically during your day, you stop uh, to think about the loss of something that you, uh, uh, take, that you appreciate, but probably take utterly for, for granted. Uh, you don't dwell on the loss of things. You don't catastrophize uh, you know, the loss of things. What you do is you allow yourself to have a flickering thought about something. So, uh, this, the object, uh, you, it can be your health, it can be your job, it can be your spouse, it can be your home, you, you, you uh, pick what you want. It can be your children. Um, just give yourself a second and a half to imagine and maybe kind of visualize what it would be like if they suddenly disappeared uh, from your life. 
uh, and and it can have a profound psychological uh, effect on you because you can come away realizing how important they are to you and how utterly for granted you probably are taking them. Uh, and that's the, the problem with the human condition is that there are things we want and we work really hard to get. And then once we get them, uh, give us a little bit of time, we start taking them for granted. And then we get new desires. And then so we think, ah, well, I got to get that new thing that I want because I'll live happily ever after this time. Promise, swear to God, I will. (laughs) And then we work hard, we get them. And at first, yeah, it's a great thing. And then give, give ourselves a little bit of time and it wears off and we start taking it for granted. So Stoic insight was, um, you know what? The thing to do is learn how to want things you already have, how to deeply uh, appreciate them. Uh, otherwise, you're on a wild goose chase. You know, you're always going to be thinking, this next thing, this next thing will do it for me, but it won't. Uh, in my life, you know, I, 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 one thing, and this isn't true just of Stoicism, but it's true if you uh, do meditation, a variety of things, is you you realize that you have a front row seat for what's going on in your mind. You get to watch it. You get besides thinking, you get to think about how you're thinking. Uh, besides experiencing desires, you got you get to think about. Where are those desires coming from, and um, and what am I going to? What am I doing with them? And uh, you become aware of, gosh, there's I'm just exposed to this flood, this tsunami of desires, and what I've got to do is pick through them. And uh, just because I find them in me, it, it doesn't from that it doesn't follow that it's um, it's what I should want. And you start becoming skeptical of your own desires. You know, a desire pops into your head, and then you start thinking, is that really what I want? Or is that something somebody planted in my mind? And if it is, um, you know, shouldn't I just dismiss it? Uh, You know, my life would be simpler if I did. But anyway, there's this tension. Uh, And I know that in, in my days, now that I watch uh, what I think and so on. It's amazing to me. Okay, so I've made my, made it my point to study Stoicism and these techniques. And one thing that uh, that I find amazing is if I get good news out of the blue, I get an email that's good news. How you know you get a little buzz. You got good news. And what's amazing to me is how quickly it dissipates, you know, we're talking hours where, you know, you go from thinking, ah, this is great to, you know, just it becomes background. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is just the way my life is, you know. Uh, and that's a shame. Uh, I, I know that I'm a very lucky uh, human being. Uh, if I were born uh, 100 years ago, uh, the things that I'm able to do with my life, I, I couldn't do. You know, I wouldn't have indoor plumbing. You go through the list, uh, maybe more like 150 years ago. And yet those people not only got along, but they seemed pretty happy. And I look around me at, and people who have all this incredible stuff. You know, the cell phone is a miracle. You can order pizza in Hong Kong with a cell phone. With, uh, with a cell phone. And in fact, you can even look at the face of the p- person you're ordering it from, you know. I don't know why anybody would want to do that, but the point <laughs> is, you you could do that, 
And yet you have these people who are just miserable. Yeah, but I don't have the latest model cell phone. And oh, take pity on me. Okay, well, you can live your life that way, but but there is an option, and that is just to become aware of what you've got and to embrace what you've got. Well, I'm fascinated with this topic of of desire. Um, you've you've written the book on desire. I was I was looking at the the date on that almost almost twenty years ago. One of my favorite books. Um, and you have an, a line in there which is really an all time favorite for me. I think it's. If desire was an Olympic sport, we would all make the team. Um, just a great line, but this idea of not necessarily fulfilling our desires, but removal of desires. How do you and how would you suggest others maybe kind of work with that removal piece of, of desires that are lingering around? Yeah, um, so it is a, a, a very interesting thing. So I recommend uh, that your listeners uh, do the following thing. It'll take them about five minutes, and it can be a life-changing uh, uh, experiment that they do. Um, so there are lots of fans of meditation. Uh, I would regard myself as a failed meditator. I've tried it. But here's the thing, even if you don't want to be a a meditator, you owe it to yourself to do a a one-time, five-minute-long, it's called a Zazen meditation. And what you do is you find some place that's kind of quiet, and uh, you sit. It can be in a comfortable chair. You don't have to sit on the ground. Um, You don't have to sit in any particular situation. You just have to be in a calm environment. And now uh, close your eyes, and then for the next five minutes, just let your mind go empty. And uh, that ought to be uh, easy to do. Uh, uh, And, you know, because how hard is it? You know, thinking is hard, so stopping thinking ought to be easy. It's like running is hard, so stopping running, you know, that that ought to be easy. So um, what you'll quickly find is that a still mind is virtually impossible because at first your you your mind will seem to be without thoughts and then they'll start sneaking back in and you'll find yourself they tend to be two different things uh, most of them are about the future and about the past uh, future so you start you realize oh I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner <gasps> oops not supposed to think so mm-hmm. let's let go of that thought there'll be thoughts about the past. Uh, thoughts about something somebody said, and there will be desires that uh, that creep in, and you got a front row seat for this as all of these thoughts and these desires simply drift into your head, and the question is where are they coming from? Now the the first response is well they're coming from me obviously they're in my mind so they're coming from me. Actually they're coming from components of you. They're coming from your heart. They're coming from your gut, and these are evolutionarily ancient components that don't necessarily have your well-being in mind because they evolved on the savannas of Africa, you know, 100,000 years ago, and they evolved to make you well-suited to that environment. But you're in a wildly different environment than that. You know, back then, the, the big thing was, will I have food to eat today? Well, now the big thing is, uh, will I overeat once again and gain even more weight than I've already gained today? 
So uh, we're, we're not well suited for that. Um, and I'm also astonished by the ability of people. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like a car going from zero to 100 in two seconds, you know, whatever, where uh, somebody can be, uh, have absolutely zero desire to do something, doesn't even think about something, and then somehow the desire is triggered. And then you can find them within a period of 24 hours uh, acting on that desire in a very, uh, and it can be a very significant kind of change in their life. Um, sometimes the, those stories have happy endings. Uh, a lot of times they don't. They, they're the subsequently labeled as impulsive and unfortunate desires. Uh, and, and that's just something we, we have to struggle with uh, as people. So the first thing to mastering your desires to the extent possible uh, is to realize how many of them are just there popping into your head. How often? Ah! Every 12 seconds, you know, they're just floating through. And uh, I know in my, in my life, like, I think I have a much better grasp of this than I used to. But tell you what, at uh, 2 a.m., if I happen to be awake at that time, I think about the dumbest things. And uh, once you get to that level, you, uh, you are not only, it might be something that angered you that day. Uh, but but uh, once you become cognizant of this, you're not only angry about what happened that day, but you experience what I call meta-anger. You're angry that you're angry because it's mm. such a stupid thing to do and it's preventing you from falling back asleep and you fool <laughs> for being angry about this. Um, but but it's progress in a curious way because some people are utterly clueless. You know, they just go with the flow. Hey, here's what I seem to want, so I'm going to act on that desire. What led you to write on desire so many years ago? Any particular um, moments? Let's see. I decided I was going to become a Zen Buddhist, and I decided that uh, I was going to uh, do uh, what here in the Midwest we call a twofer. And that's two for the price of one. So I thought, okay, so I'm going to do lots of research in conjunction with becoming a Zen Buddhist. But I can get a publication out of this. And as a, as a climbing academic, uh, publications, that's how you rise through the, through the ranks from assistant professor to associate professor and so on. Uh, and then I thought, okay, so I'll do a whole bunch of, of, of research on Zen Buddhism and somehow put it into a book, and then it dawned on me. But, of course, to be complete and publishable, uh, this book should also examine uh, alternatives to Zen Buddhism. And that's when I uh, hit Stoicism again and uh, realized uh, two profound things. Uh, number one is that it has a much lower price of admission than Zen Buddhism does. So um, my standard uh, sales pitch is uh, on a three-day weekend, you can learn enough about Stoicism to find out whether it's what its techniques are, its psychological techniques, and whether they're going to work for you or not. Uh, and if you're going to become a Zen Buddhist, <clears throat> you're going to spend a lot of time meditating and maybe you'll have uh, 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 your moment of enlightenment tomorrow. Or it could be 30 years' time. Yeah, hard to tell. <laughs> so a lot a lower um, price of admission. And then the second discovery was 
that these strategies, these Stoic strategies, very easy to learn, very easy to practice. A negative visualization is, uh, is one of them. And highly effective if what you want to do is avoid negative emotions like uh, anger, uh, envy, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so it seemed to me, so I went into it thinking this is going to be the book in which I justify becoming a Zen Buddhist and popped out the other end uh, thinking, oh, I want to be a Stoic. And then once you're, you've kind of gone a certain level into Stoic Stoicism, you become aware uh, that you have uh, this, what I call a Stoic duty. And that is, uh, you have now um, figured out something that most people don't figure out. And so it becomes, it's incumbent on you now to share what you've figured out with other people so they can be helped by the thing that helped you. And um, so uh, right after writing on desire, then the next book was uh, Guide to the Good Life, uh, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, in which I tried to put um, Stoicism into a compact form so people could uh, pick up this book, read it, kind of know the basics of Stoicism, uh, start practicing Stoicism in a kind of a low-key way, and find out whether it would work for them or not. Also a great book. I've got a question for you. Speaking of meditation, you have a series of of talks on the Waking Up Meditation app. And maybe people wouldn't necessarily connect stoicism with meditation or mindfulness. How do you see the connection? Yeah, so um, so I I had done... uh, So Sam Harris, who... He wears multiple hats, so he's got the Making Sense podcast, um, which I, um, I, I'm i a big fan of. He's also got the Waking Up app, and he had read uh, Gu- Guide to the Good Life and asked me, uh, he said he wanted to interview me for the Waking Up app. And uh, so I did that, and then afterwards he, uh, he started doing on that. He's branched, he's expanded that app considerably because now he has these things called practice and uh, so there are a number of different uh, uh, lines of practice you can take and so mine is called the stoic path so and I agree with you that it is a little bit um, uh, uh, kind of uh, misleading I don't know if that's the right word but what I'm doing is meditation in some sense of the word I mean, you know, we think of Marcus Aurelius, the meditations, which weren't, re- that was a modern title added to them. Um, it was his kind of private diary, and somebody put that on. There are uh, Stoic things, strategies you can use that have a meditation-like aspect to them. Negative visualization is one. There are some others. But a lot of it is is not that at all. It's just strategies for uh, for living. But uh, Sam Harris asked me whether I could come up with um, a series on that, and so it's basically uh, a, a very kind of personalized introduction to Stoicism. Very little Stoic history proper, but a lot of Stoic strategies for dealing with uh, the thoughts you have that you might not want to have, you know, these negative emotions. Uh, and so I, I had a lot of fun doing them. I had to 
had to learn uh, audio editing. <laughs> so it's a learning curve for me. Uh, and, um, but enjoyed, uh, enjoyed doing it. And uh, yeah, so those are out there. And I've gotten some good responses about those. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of proud of having been able to, to do that. Yeah, they're absolutely great. I've listened to them multiple times. I have a question, just in in your opinion, when you think about whether it be Zen Buddhism or other traditions, maybe broadly wisdom traditions, do you see a similarity? Like maybe at the end of that, I've heard you're a fan of Seneca, but to me it seems there's a lot of similarities between maybe Seneca and someone that followed a, a Zen Buddhist path at the end of many decades of, of studying that particular tradition. Do you see a lot of similarities or not so much? Yeah, that was the, the striking thing, because you start looking at these uh, ancient truths, these discovered truths, uh, uh, you know, Buddhism, Epicureanism, skepticism, you know, all these ancient uh, schools of philosophy. Uh, and you realize, oh, you know what? A lot of them share uh, the same uh, goal, and that is uh, what you might call a life of tranquility. That's a dangerous word because that doesn't mean a zombie-like state. It means mm-hmm. the absence of negative, uh, vis- uh, negative emotions, at least that's the way I use it. Uh, a, a life of equanimity would be another phrase you could use. They're all, they're all aimed for that, aiming for that because they know that what makes people miserable Yes, your circumstances can make you miserable, but uh, the real source of deep misery is your the state of your own mind. You know, if your mind is filled with uh, negative emotions constantly, you're you're not going to be a happy camper. So that they kind of agreed, they had the same goal. What they had is different strategies for uh, attaining that goal. Um, so, for instance, a Zen Buddhist, how do you do it? Well, you're going to need to meditate. You're going to need to uh, learn how to empty your mind of those thoughts. Uh, uh, that's going to require... Uh, 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 and I, this is by no means a put-down of, of Zen Buddhism. And, uh, well, I've also been told by uh, Henry Shukman, uh, a Zen master... Uh, in America here, uh, that uh, that as, as far as he's concerned, uh, Stoicism and Zen Buddhism are utterly compatible. And mm-hmm. from the Stoic point of view, I would say, yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. And in fact, just a few minutes ago, didn't I just suggest that uh, your audience uh, stick at least one toe into uh, into meditation? But here's the thought, that, and, and it's that... Um, um, when we meditate, uh, we're, we're trying to reach some end. When we use Stoic strategies, we're trying to reach that same end, but in a dramatically different way. So you can think of two different tools to do the same job. And then the question is, how do you, how do you choose between uh, the tools? So uh, Stoicism, as I put it, has a lower uh, cost of admission, you know, a lower entry price. Uh, On a three-day weekend, you can find out uh, what Stoicism is and whether it's working for you. I don't think you can do that uh, with uh, Zen Buddhism. And yet, there are people for whom 
Zen Buddhism is probably going to be more effective than Stoicism. Mm. Uh, you know, because there is this whole thing about personality and how people are wired. There are, I'm convinced, people who are born Stoics. You know, they just kind of grow up knowing these strategies, and they're always imagining, oh, you know, things could be worse. And th- that comes as second nature. There are other people who seem to be wired with anxiety. And, uh, you know, you tell them, here's how things can get worse. And then they 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 zero, uh, veer off and start catastrophizing, right? And then are miserable as a result. So, uh, advice, try them. Try, try Epicureanism. <laughs> try skepticism. These are these ancient schools of philosophy. Find the one that fits you and then, uh, and then, and then stick with it. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say it's, um, I, I'm not going to be, you know, authoritative and say, well, Stoicism is the one and only one and it's what you should do. It's one of many. And f- for some people, it's going to be easy. Uh, for some people will find out they're already doing it, uh, mm-hmm. and for other people, it'll it'll be a stretch. Well, I love that. I got a question for you on your website. You you mentioned how growing up, you moved around a lot, and it says you know every twelve to eighteen months, uh, quite a bit of a moving. Was that um, some good stoic training? How do you think that uh, influences your perspective today? Um, yeah, so the childhood, it's interesting, because you can try to imagine what it would be like to have a different childhood, live in a different country, different parents, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what, what good uh, comes of that. But, uh, you know, the other thing is I had uh, a childhood wildly different than my own children did. Uh, the, 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 I had a free-range childhood, you know, where... Uh, uh, I mean, I remember as a teenager, we, we kind of lived in the woods, and uh, I would simply say to my mom, hey, I'm going to go out and shoot stuff, you know, and I'd take a twenty two rifle out, and she would say, fine, just be home for dinner. You know, that, that was normal. <laughs> that was in Montana, and that's just what you did in Montana. Uh, and yet, if my kids, you know, if they had a BB gun nearby, I would be in a panicky state. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, well, for instance, when I was, I went to first and second grade, actually, I never finished second grade. So, uh, I'm wondering whether I'll, I'll, I'll somehow have everything undone, because we moved halfway through, and that was in, in Chile, in South America. So, there's six seasons out there, you know, there's a season out, you know, in summer here, it's winter there. Um, so I just jumped from second and a half grade into third grade and seemed to transition. But when I lived in Chile, I was exposed early uh, to, uh, you know, what some other possible childhood lives were like. And I remember one particular occasion when I uh, left my house to go to school and there were kids my age, this would be seven-year-old kids, eating out of my garbage can. And then, you know, you're struck mm-hmm. by wow, you know, it's just uh, an accident that I am me and they are them, and it could have been reversed. Uh, uh, Growing up a lot in in Montana and Nevada, you learn how to stay humble. Uh, So, um, you know, it's interesting, but at the 
uh, at the university, you know, when we, we get uh, emails from colleagues, there will be um, people who list all of their credentials under their name, you know, when they sign off. Uh, and I will uh, typically just sign Bill Irvin philosophy, you know. Uh, you learn to be humble because <laughs> if you're if you get if you get airs, people beat you up, you know. And, and it's a lesson that I know no longer is applicable, but you kind of carry into um, uh, later life. Uh, I guess uh, I have acquired the ability to strike up a conversation with almost anyone and to profit from the conversation. Um, so I've had some wonderful conversations with absolute strangers. Um, so, you know, and, and, and so I don't, I don't take on air. So it's interesting how, um, that early life carries on later. I mean, another thing is my mother lived through the depression and as a result, I'm very, very good at saving money. You know, Mm -hmm. these wrinkles that go through, uh, through generations, uh, yeah, but but uh, I'm I'm glad that I had that childhood. But you know what? There's a a good chance that uh, I would say that no matter what hmm. childhood I had had. Well, I appreciate you sharing. And another question I have, and I know our our time is flying by here, so we'll we'll wrap it up with a few. But you've said that when you're faced with a, a difficult question, you might ask, "What would Seneca do?" Is that still the case? Yes. And that this is a general, a broader thing, and that is um, role playing. It's a way to simplify your uh, your life. Uh, you have lots of decisions to make in the course of a day, and uh, and that can bog you down. You can get into decision overload. So it's nice to have a device by which you can simplify your decision making. Uh, so, so one thing is you, the decision is that you're going to play a certain role. Uh, so uh, one example is you can say, I'm going to play the role of an honest person. In other words, it's a choice. I'm going to be an honest person. And then you see some woman drop her wallet. And then the question is, what should you do? And if you're playing mm-hmm. the role of an honest person, it's easy. Hey, lady, you lost mm-hmm. your wallet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also play the, the role of, uh, of a kind person. You can be on the lookout to do acts of kindness. And so that's just you sort of identifying with some character trait. But you can also do that not just in terms of character traits, but in terms of individuals as, uh, as a decision-making aid. Um, so I know Christians uh, who, when they have a difficult choice to make, they ask themselves, what would Jesus do? And uh, uh, I'm not particularly religious, but uh, I, I know I will find myself uh, in, the, in the day uh, s- saying, uh, when I have an interesting choice to make, well, what would Seneca do under these circumstances? Uh, I know getting out of bed this morning, mm-hmm. I was just there, and it was it's cold here in where I am in in Ohio, and uh, and just comfortable under the under the the blankets. And I thought, uh, well, what would uh, uh, what would Marcus Aurelius do? And I don't have to mm-hmm. wonder because he tells us in his meditations. <laughs> he said, "Was I really put here on Earth to stay warm under these blankets, or do I have work to do?" And, you know, and that got me moving. I got work to do. I got stuff to write. I got uh, people to talk to. Uh, so it got me going. Those are two interesting devices. And, you know, most yeah. people think that their personality 
is a fixed thing. It's just baked in. Uh, I'm now convinced that your fir- your personality is remarkably pliable, but mm. it's going to take you effort and thought in order to modify your personality. Your likes and dislikes are also pliable, uh, but most people don't uh, don't think of it in that way. Okay. Just a couple more questions. One is on the on hobbies. You you speak about how you're into rowing, or you would call it sculling. How important are hobbies in in practicing our philosophy of life, whatever that may be? Um, for me, um, sculling, and that's when you row with two oars. Sweep is when you row with one oar. Uh, you need, obviously, another person in the boat, or the boat's going to go around in circles. But it's been a wonderful... Um, uh, you know, I've learned a lot doing it. Uh, obviously, I've learned a lot about rowing, but I've learned a lot about life. Uh, so it's uh, put me in contact with other people, you know, being part of a team. Uh, and the, the biggest thing is I, uh, I hadn't planned to do this, but I got into competitive rowing. And that means um, big-time training, and that means uh, doing intervals in training. And that means, uh, for example, there's one drill I do, I call it the four-minute flu, where you start out feeling just good as can be, and four minutes later at the end of the interval, <laughs> you feel like you got the flu, you're panting, you, you can't speak a coherent sentence, you know, you're sweating profusely. Uh, and then what do you do? Well, you recover for five minutes, and then you do it again. And then you do it again. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is, you know, so it sounds like this exercise in masochism, but you learn a lot from doing it. You, you learn what your uh, capacity is. You, you learn, um, you expand your comfort zone. You know, I'll have people tell me that they've got an ache at some part of their body. And, you know, I'll think about it and I'll realize half my body aches. It's just that for me, I take this background. It's just what happens if you, if you lift weights, if you do interval training. Also, during a race, this is a very important lesson to me, is uh, the value of taking one more stroke. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're in a race, and you know if it's a 1,000-meter race, you know you're going to have a certain number of strokes you're probably going to take. Uh, and you go through the whole thing where you start out feeling super and you go out too fast and then you start getting tired and by the third uh, quarter of the race you're you're exhausted and then you the, these voices start coming in your head of you know you could just quit go ahead bill just quit think of how you'd feel would all the pain would go away if you just quit and then you learn to put that voice in its place no you are not in charge of me I'm going to keep rowing. And then at the end of the, str- uh, of the race, you know, one more stroke. And that's a valuable th- uh, of skill to have in life. Because in life, you know, there's going to be times when the difference between you having more days of life and you not having more days is your ability to take uh, the equivalent of one more stroke. I love it. One more stroke, and I guess back to that five-minute meditation, those voices will come out come out there as yep. well. <laughs> um, one final question that we ask everybody, Bill, it's uh, this is In Search of Wisdom, obviously. It's how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life to wrap up the conversation? 
Okay, wisdom uh, is, uh, you know it when you uh, hear it, Uh, so I'm in constant search for mentors, and these are people who have wisdom. Uh, There's such a thing as generic wisdom, where they know a lot about a lot of things. A true mentor, by the way, uh, there are a lot of false mentors out there. There are also anti-mentors out there. If they tell you, here's what you need to do, you need to do just the opposite. But a true (laughs) mentor, not only can give you advice on what to do, but but can give you explanations of why it's the right thing to do. So a mentor who refuses to answer questions is not a mentor. It's a guru, and you've got to be careful about mm. uh, gurus because uh, a lot of them are fraudulent. Uh, so in my search for mentors, uh, there are a lot of um, what I would call partial mentors, and these are people who have figured out one aspect of life, and when they're talking, I shut up and take notes. Uh, if they drift to a different aspect of life, well, they're just talking now. Uh, you know, and the ideal thing would be to have this universal mentor. And I've known some people who have come close, and maybe Seneca, you know, but he's not here now, but uh, would uh, come close to that. But there are wise people out there, sometimes selectively wise, sometimes with uh, great uh, grasp, insights into life and how best to live it. Uh, When you encounter one, sit down, (laughs) listen, turn off your mouth, unless you're asking questions, and take lots and lots of notes. Well, this has been great, Bill. Thank you so much for that. Where would you point people interested in, in learning more about you? I've got a website, William B. Irvin. It's B as in boy, WilliamBIrvin.com. Uh, there's uh, lots of podcasts listed there. Uh, there's lots of free stuff to read. Uh, there's more about me than any human needs to know. Uh, so <laughs> I would I would head them there. Uh, other than that, I have a very, very low, and this is intentional, but a very, very low uh, kind of social media presence. Uh, but yeah, so that's 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 a uh, principal stop for more information. Well, Bill, thank you again for coming on In Search of Wisdom. This has been great. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. and It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.